Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to North in Numbers, the podcast that gets the human stories behind the stats. I'm David Dubas-Fisher, and I'll be your host this week, standing in for Annie Goak, as we take a look at the state of football in the North. We're going to be talking to Professor Simon Chadwick of Salford University, journalist and football finance expert Dean Rudge, Jakub Crook of Lancashire Live, and Anthony Vickers of the Teesside Gazette. We'll be talking about the financial imbalances that exist between Northern clubs, how they came about, what they mean for the future of the game and how clubs can overcome them. So, stay tuned. Now, at first glance, the state of football in the North looks pretty healthy. Liverpool are the reigning world and European champions and are on course to win their first league title in 30 years. Manchester City, meanwhile, won the previous two Premier League titles, while Northern clubs have won over two-thirds of them since the competition was formed in 1992. On top of that, Manchester United, Manchester City and Liverpool have all made the top 10 of Deloitte's Money League, which ranks the world's richest clubs. Only Barcelona and Real Madrid kept Man United off the top spot. But outside the gilded bubble in which these elites live, are scores of left-behind clubs struggling to make their way in the world. Bolton and Bury are just a few miles away from the riches of Old Trafford and the Etihad. They're both former FA Cup winners and have both been in the top flight Bolton as recently as 2012. But these two old traditional English clubs face financial oblivion earlier this season. Simon Chadwick is a professor of sport enterprise at Salford University. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the game, including UEFA, Barcelona, Chelsea and Adidas. So how does he see clubs like Bolton and Berry in the modern age? We live in a really different world, I think, to the world that I lived in when I was a kid. Uh, and I'm old, I'm really old. Um, and so I remember a, a different age where the football club was in front of your house. I used to live right opposite the football stadium of, of, of my club in the north. I, 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 I think about Bolton and Berry and, and all of these other clubs in, in, in a nostalgic way. And, and, and I do understand historically the sociocultural role that, that these clubs played. But we live in a very different world now where obviously technology and issues like migration and the transient nature of populations um, are significant. But I think there's also something too now about, you know, we live in an age when where effectively capitalism won and capitalism is all about making money. And so it's no longer enough for a museum or you know, a doctor's surgery or a shop just to be there because it serves a social purpose as we know in most cases and most of us work in occupations we work in jobs where we're told you don't make money it doesn't run and what people need to realize and again i'm not necessarily saying that i agree with this nor do i disagree with it but i don't necessarily agree with this is 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 that football clubs are now in the position if they don't make money they they don't survive and and this is uh this is a consequence of our age so you know, it's a great thing. It's a great thing to be born and brought up in Bolton, to be from Bolton, to support Bolton. You know, I understand all of that, and I feel, to a certain extent, 
the same things about my club, but I just think we live in an age where money is essentially the, the, the major driver of whether football clubs and other organisations survive or not. I, th- I think football is being bombarded by lots of different pressures, by lots of different influences, and, and, and particularly football lower down the league pyramid. You know, it's tough. It's tough. You've got to, they've got to be really on their game. They've got to be really on the ball to survive, I think. One club trying to keep on top of that ball is Blackburn Rovers. Blackburn is one of those left-behind towns that you hear about on the news. Rovers were once battling the likes of Manchester United for the Premier League title. Now they're in the Championship, fighting for a promotion. One thing the club sees as crucial to future success is to engage with sections of the community that aren't traditionally associated with supporting the club. The latest census suggests that a third of Blackburn's population is from non-white British backgrounds, communities which aren't associated with football support. Jakub Krupp covers the club for Lancashire Live and tells me about how they're reaching out to those communities. I think it's relationship with local communities essential uh, and Blackburn do have a, a very good relationship with the actual town itself and, and Darwin. Um, it's only recently they, um, they appointed a um, sort of community manager to work with the black and ethnic minorities um, in the area and he's like coordinating like, events and stuff which so that Blackburn run alongside yeah other BAME sort of uh, events and, and stuff like that and that's in, in an attempt to sort of bring them closer into the community it's a very community-esque sort of club uh, feel about the club but, uh, back in the day when like, in the Premier League and stuff there was a greater attraction to them for like fans that are outside the Blackburn area and I think you've still got a couple of them supporters like going strong but you know kids these days tend to find obviously they want to be supporting clubs in the Premier League you know the Man United the Man Cities and I think they're trying to find ways to make themselves like more attractive to, to a greater audience uh, but at the minute all like the foundations you have to have a, a strong relationship with the community and uh, Rovers have that without a doubt and it's sort of held them together in a way um, through the roughs and uh, bumps especially since 2013. So the way football has changed um, in the last couple of years, people, I think, take um, their history as if it, it's, it grants them a place in the, in the Premier League, but history is history. Middlesbrough is another left-behind town. Its club is located in the 244th most deprived neighbourhood in England, according to the government's latest figures. Only Blackpool are located in a more deprived area. Anthony Vickers is the senior Middlesbrough writer for the Gazette in Teesside. Here, he tells us what it would mean to the town if Borough were to go the same way as Bury and Bolton. It, it, it would be cultural Armageddon. In a town like Middlesbrough, uh, the, the club is the only show in town. It's it's your face to the world. It's your your banner to the world. And, and if it wasn't for the football club, people wouldn't know where Middlesbrough was. And that's the bottom line. It is the most important cultural institution in the town. And in Middlesbrough, we're acutely aware of that because the club nearly went in 1986. It got within half an hour of going under. It, it was potentially catastrophic. And you dread to think what would have happened if, if Borough hadn't um, made that payment and played that game on that day. And that was a period when a lot of clubs went very close. Big famous clubs, big clubs nearly went under. Wolves nearly went, Burnley nearly went. Uh, I think Chelsea were in serious problems. 
And I don't think we should get blasé about thinking that because there's a lot of money in the game at the minute, that it's always going to be there. I think the first duty of a club ownership or stewardship is to ensure that that is a viable institution and that no point do they ever come under threat. Balancing the books is a key part to preventing that Armageddon. Middlesbrough had a brief spell in the Premier League in 2016-17 and benefited from the financial boost which that provides. They're now in their third season back in the Championship, however, and as Anthony explains, that means a substantial drop in the club's revenue. Cutting wages is now the club's top priority. I think Borough's interesting because obviously they had that brief spell in the Premier League where suddenly they had a lot of money and then they're having to retrench again and get back down to a new normal. Well, then the, the last parachute payment was last year. The revenues last year were 65 million, and this year they're 21. But the parachute payments do help in terms of financial fair play because it's a three year cycle. But it's next year that's going to be the bite, really. So when, when they came down, the wage bill had been 65 million in the, the Premier League. And clearly that's unsustainable. Right? It's down to about 22 now after two summers of. of uh, uh, trimming away at the big spenders. That's still well above the championship average. You can't really sustain a £22 wage bill when your revenues for the year are £21 You've also got to pay for all the day-to-day things like the running of the ground. It costs £12 million before Borough kick a ball to run the stadium, utilities, rates, staff costs, uh, public health insurance, security to collect the cash from the kiosks, Police medical cover, uh, maintenance and repair, clean. You know, that's before a ball is kicked. Another two million to run the training ground, and another two and a half million on top of that to run the academy, and that's before you've even pay, paid a single player. And if you think that those costs, uh, the basic sort of fixed running cost of the club, and then you get eight million pounds through the gate, that's before you've even looked at your, at your uh, uh, wage bill, and that's the reality for clubs is that they have to run quite a sophisticated operation that the main drive for borough is to reduce the wage bill uh, and this year it's about 22 so you would imagine most of those players are on or above the 20 grand a week mark which is clearly unsustainable for a club in the championship borough's aim is to bring the average down from the premier league average to the championship average so they're really looking towards uh, a wage ceiling of 10 to 12 for people coming in. Some of those people who are out of contract will be offered new deals, but it'll be nowhere near what they're on now. And if you look at the kind of signings that Borough made last summer, uh, they brought in three permanent signings, and they were all from League One clubs, and would have all been on substantially lower wages. So that's, that's their main financial strategy, is to reduce the wage bill. It's anecdotal, but I mean, there are six or seven clubs in the championship that are sailing very close to the wind in terms of functioning as, as a normal business. I mean, they just do not have the money to pay the wage bill. And you can only go on so long doing that. And at some point, decent sized famous clubs that are a massive community asset are going to go under. Like Anthony says, Middlesbrough aren't the only club in the championship struggling to balance ambition with sustainability. It's estimated that around half of clubs in the second tier are spending more than 100% of their revenues on wages. Dean Rudge is a journalist and football finance expert and paints a bleak picture of the state of club finances in the Championship. The, the, the issue here is, is that a lot of clubs are, are basically taking short-term gambles on wages to try and get back in the Premier League uh, from the Championship. 
So, uh, yeah, a BBC report from last year found that more than half the teams were paying out more than 100% of revenues and wages, obviously using any kind of outside financing to make up a difference or, you know, indeed player sales or, you know, stuff like that. So, Birmingham City um, were one of the worst defenders, you know, posting they were upwards of sort of approaching 200% of, of revenues were going on wages in the season where they were hit with their points deduction. And what's interesting to note here is that when UEFA, back earlier in the decade, decided to impose financial fair play rules, they came up with a number of 70% that a team should, 70% would be the absolute limit, not not to exceed that. But in the championship, that just simply doesn't doesn't exist. I think the, the issue here is that if a, if a team in the championship on the money they earn was saying to players, we can only pay 70% of revenues, they wouldn't be able to sign anyone. But it's, it's a risk that teams are taking to get themselves back in the Premier League. And the thing is, obviously, uh, that the highest spender doesn't isn't guaranteed success. It's it, Everything in the championship is, is just a gamble. Sometimes um, sensible planning and, and long-term strategy pays off in, instead of you know short-term. It's it's why it's such a watchable league as well because you've got these these short term teams and these long term strategy teams. We've seen Brentford now who are like the kind of the, the symbol of long term planning, you know, um, who've absolutely set in the championship on fire really this season, and they're not massively in debt as far as I can tell. You know, if a championship team is fifty million pounds in debt, it can pay off that debt if it gets promoted. And if a championship team is in fifty million pounds in debt and doesn't get promoted, then it can't pay off that debt. And it's, it's really worrying to kind of think about it in those terms. Championship club owners are having to look at other ways of funding their club's drive to the top flight. These often prove controversial with the authorities and fans alike. And obviously one of the problems is is if, if you borrow money from a third party, often that money you borrow will you know, accrue interest. Uh, and that in itself can be problematic. Um, it can quickly get out of control. I, I suppose the thing to say here is that most championship teams uh, have financial projections that go sort of a couple of years or three years into the future. You know, they, they plan for the eventuality that they might run out of money. But having said that, we've seen in the last 18 months with Aston Villa that came very close to going out of business because they found that their cash had dried up and they had a tax bill they couldn't pay. They had a debt they couldn't pay. So uh, you can plan for the future, but ultimately if your costs are so high, because you're chasing promotion, uh, these things can get out of hand and, and maybe we will see a team with so much debt it, it might just have to hold its hands and say we can't pay it. Anthony Vickers points out, though, that sometimes fans are often incredibly vocal and are most keen for their club to spend big in order to get back into the Premier League. Well, I think most, most fans are realistic, but I don't, think, I don't think the agenda is often set by most fans. I think the agenda is set by uh, small groups of, of very noisy fans on, on social media and also the fact that you can't get away from it, the constant pounding of Sky Sports and the yellow ticker tape and the countdown to deadline day. And if you're not spending £5 million on deadline day, what are you doing? Well, to me, if you're spending £5 million on deadline day, that's bad planning. You shouldn't be spending £5 million on deadline day. The the deal should have been done in the summer when you can make strategic planning. Uh, If you're running around in January throwing money at problems, then that, to me, speaks of bigger structural issues than just finance. But the, the whole Sky Sports deadline day razzmatazz with the yellow tie, and it's it is crazy, and that is what's driving the demands from a lot of people to be involved. There's a lot of people who support the transfer market. You know, they're more excited by transfer rumours than they are by results of how the club's actually, how the team's actually shape, shaping up. And it's become almost 
sentient now that the transfer market is something separate and people buy into it. And if your club's not involved in it, then you know what they start to feel. You know, it's it's FOMO. You know, why aren't we involved on deadline day? And for me, that's just crazy. It's totally divorced from the reality of, of running the club, and uh, it's totally divorced from the financial, the harsh financial reality in the championship. I win when I see some some championship clubs throwing money around the way they do, and with squads of forty. 40 people. It's just not possible to sustain that in the Championship. A complaint by many Championship club owners is the lack of money coming from broadcasters. While Premier League clubs earn hundreds of millions of pounds from broadcast revenues, only a fraction of that is making it down to the lower leagues. That's despite interest in Championship games often rivaling that of ones in the top flight. Essentially the problem really lies between the Premier League and the Championship, where if you look at the kind of broadcasting revenues on offer, Premier League clubs will earn 10 times plus what a championship club would earn. So just looking at the figures from last year, Huddersfield Town, bottom of the Premier League, £97 million from the Premier League they received. Uh, Man City won the league, got £150 million. Then you go down to the championship and you look at a team like Birmingham City, who, you know, not that long ago were in the Premier League themselves, are getting by on £8 million a season in broadcasting income. So you can clearly see the, the big difference there and, and you can kind of get a sense of why so many championship clubs are desperate to get back into the Premier League or break into the Premier League. One of the things you could say that certainly I feel this way that Watford versus Burnley in the Premier League is about as appealing to the common fan as Watford versus Burnley in the Championship, you know. But the fact it's a Premier League game means it, it's so much more valuable to both teams. It's only a lot of, you know, the common fan tunes in to watch Manchester United versus Chelsea or something like that, that they don't really make a distinction between the kind of lesser lesser teams. And in fact, having said that, a, a big championship game is in fact much more appealing. You know, Leeds versus West Brom is a much more appealing game than two bottom teams in the Premier League. But in terms of broadcasting money, which is what counts, it, it, it doesn't make a difference. Uh, some championship clubs are now being put in the position of having to sell their best players to try and keep up simply because they're not having their money come through the door and they don't have an owner who will subsidise them. The richest clubs uh, are able to hang on to their best players. And, and one of the things I find very interesting about the championship is there's almost like some kind of unfair tax on, on lower championship clubs whereby a smaller team with a very talented player, uh, we've seen it in the last few days, with the lad Luke Matheson at Rochdale, he has just joined Wolves for a million pounds, which, you know, massive money for Rochdale. But if, if he if he was originally playing for Wolves, he would have gone for considerably more. So it's almost like an unfair tax on the lower teams that they, they can't monetize their players in this way when they move them on. Without kind of rebranding it, I really do feel that the, the championship, because it's so popular and because some of the matches are so entertaining to even the common fans, that there really does need to be more of a split in revenues between the Premier League and the Championship. You know, as I say, the t- a top six clash in the Championship is much more exciting to watch than a bottom clash in the Premier League. But there's no there's no difference in, in broadcasting money. So I think that needs to be recognised going forward. I don't know how they would go about doing it. Ch- uh, championship clubs can't keep spending above their means to get back in the Premier League. Something has to give. Um, or a team may well go out of business. Any kind of reform of the current system seems unlikely, though, as Professor Chadwick explains. 
It would be nice to think that um, somebody in a very high place acknowledges, accepts and then acts upon the fact that football clubs play an important community role, an important socio-cultural role. For that matter, could play an important technological role, could play an important environmental role. But I don't think that governments in Britain have ever repeat ever <laughs> understood football um, you might get the odd prime minister from time to time or the odd, the odd cabinet minister who say I'm a fan I'm a fan but in reality most of them don't understand it and even those who do understand it tend to keep back from it because it's 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 dangerous territory um, obviously it's it's not hospital beds it's not school places but at the same time, we know what football fans are like. If they're unhappy, they will tell you they're unhappy. And so politicians just stand clear of it. And so in terms of uh, protecting this national cultural asset, it's a, a national historic cultural asset, our football. But I really don't sense that any politician, certainly in my living memory, has, has really sought to protect it or for that matter to capitalize upon it in a way that they could so i don't i don't see i don't see politically that anything will happen in terms of in terms of you know leagues and competitions and uh, it's just so complicated now because this is not just about northern folk protecting mm. northern clubs uh, we know for instance that liverpool not owned by a local people manchester city not owned by local people United not owned by local people you know, you've even got the likes of Sheffield United for instance you know, which, which is historically has, has not been like the big Manchester or Liverpool clubs not owned by local people um, at the same time we have major global media corporations spending huge amounts of money on, contra on TV contracts on internet contracts We've got kit suppliers from you know, Portland, Oregon. We've got players from Egypt. We've got players from Senegal. Um, I think that our domestic football authorities simply don't have... I think don't think they have the resources. I don't think they have the bodies. I don't think they have the experience. And I would question whether or not they've even got the will to be able to address this hugely complex and diverse operating environment in which football clubs function. So, what does the future look like? Well, football romantics may be a little disappointed. Professor Simon Chadwick talks about how the rich are only going to get richer, and our breakaway Super League seems inevitable. I think uh, some kind of Super League is inevitable, because the bigger getting bigger and stronger, and, and, and the smaller getting weaker and smaller. I always may draw the comparison between football and, and uh, food shops. When I was a kid, you wanted, a food you wanted to go food shop and you went to the corner shop and the person who worked in the corner shop knew your name. Um, you'd possibly go in there every day. You know, if you didn't have the right money, they would let you off and say, I'll pay next time you come in. They knew exactly what you were going to buy. You know, so they would know on a, you know, on a Friday, you'd always come in for your four cans of beer. And, and, and so... I think many people had that that kind of relationship with their football club for, for, for many years. But what we now know about food shopping is those corner shops generally have gone and they've been replaced by big, out-of-town places. 
very often foreign owned. You know, take Astor as a prime example, American owned. Price is great, choice is great, but you know, this is not about you as the consumer. They know nothing about you. They, they don't call you by your first name. They're not going to let you have things on tick. Um, their supply chains are global. You know, they're bringing in fruit and veg from Africa, from South America. And, and I think that this is very similar again with football. What we now have with, with City, United, with Liverpool, with Tottenham, with Arsenal, and, and for that matter with Real Madrid and Barcelona and Juventus and Bayern Munich and is, is the football equivalent of, of, of Asda and Sainsbury's and Tesco. You're big, out of town, not particularly close to people. You're going to get exactly what you want there. You're going to get a good quality product, hopefully at a good price. Uh, you know what you're buying, so there's a, you know, an element of certainty there. And so what we know about food shopping, we, the industry, is it's an industry that is now dominated by a small number of very large organisations. So if you then transfer that logic into football, what we now have in football is an industry that is dominated by a, very, a small number of very large organisations. And I, uh, I, I've, I've worked for UEFA, I've worked for the European Clubs Association, I've been into clubs, you know, some of those top clubs um, in the Premier League and, and, and worked with them and, and obviously discussed what they do. And I think it's a source of frustration for them that, that you know, they could be bigger, but because of obviously their, the history and the heritage of, of football as, as, as it has been, you know, that's, that's a constraint. And people sat in the United States, people sat in Abu Dhabi, you know, they don't care too much for English social history. What they care about is money and political influence and global growth. So we're not, we're not talking about football anymore. I think that's a crucial thing. We're not talking about football. We're talking about entertainment. We're talking about a source of digital content. We're talking about an endless stream of commercial opportunities. And so rather than, rather than thinking about, um, let's say, for example, Manchester City now in terms of Manchester City 40 years ago, Manchester City 40 years ago was about East Manchester and it was, being about, it was about being brought up in Levenshulme and it was being about walking 10 or 15 minutes from the, to the stadium from your, from your house and, you know, with your mum and dad. And, and it was about that community getting identity through Manchester City. But Manchester City now is, is, um, is effectively an entertainment business. It's Hollywood, it is uh, Silicon Valley. And if we look at what the chief executive of Manchester City has said, he's, he's even said himself that he, he's building Manchester City and the City Football Group on the basis of the Walt Disney model. So it's a, it's an entertainment business. It, it produces entertainment products. These are these are global. This is Hollywood. You know, no, people don't grow grow tired of Hollywood. People are still going to see films. Still, people are still buying the action figures. Still, people are still buying the, the t-shirts. You know, they still buy the ice cream and the popcorn before they go in. And and for those top top clubs, that's their vision. You know, their vision is of something that is like Hollywood. You know, Hollywood never dies. It just grows and changes and get gets bigger and remains strong as as things stand at the moment this is you know, this is just never ending this will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and those top clubs will just get bigger and stronger and grow and become more global become less local um, and their fans will be just as likely to come from Beijing and Tokyo and Cape Town and Mumbai as they are from East Manchester and 
from other parts of the northwest. Okay, so that's all for this week. Uh, thank you for joining me, David Dubas Fisher, on the North in Numbers. Join us again on the 21st of February when Annie will be back looking at Universal Credit. The North in Numbers is a laudable production.